This is KFCF 88.1 FM in Fresno. Stay tuned next for Science, a Candle in the Dark. friends and welcome to science a candle in the dark this is our monthly conversation about the wonder of science and how it illuminates our lives and our minds in this incredible universe in association with the central valley cafe scientifique we strive to make science a part of our public discourse especially here in california's central valley i'm your host dr madhusudan katti from the biology department at fresno state and I've been organizing the Cafe Scientifique in Fresno since October of 2007. So we are in our ninth season now. And more importantly, more immediately, we are also on the cusp of completing our first year of this show on the Valley's Airways. So our first episode aired uh, a whole year ago on February 24th in 2015. So I guess it's almost a happy birthday to the show. Uh, in our last episode... Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we actually had a special hour-long roundtable discussion on sexual harassment in the sciences, which included an interview with California Congresswoman Jackie Speer, and it was a deeply insightful conversation about one of the most insidious problems in our culture, which inhibits many a bright young person from pursuing science and contributing their best to our collective knowledge. If you missed the discussion when it aired, let me remind you that our show is available as a podcast. So you can listen to it at any time at your convenience. We are, as I said, celebrating the first anniversary of this show today. And it's a great time to go look at our archive in the podcast to see the range of topics we have covered in just a half hour of airtime every month. We've taken you listeners into deep time and the outer reaches of space as far as we can see. We've peered into the human mind and explored ways of understanding the incredible diversity of life on our planet not just in remote wildernesses, but closer to home in our own backyards. So you can find the link to the podcast on our website or search for it on the fruit-based or non-fruit-based online music store of your choice. And uh, with that reminder, we, we may actually be celebrating raising a glass to our show later in, later in this half hour. But let me uh, go over a few science news items that have caught my attention. So during the last show, I mentioned that we, we had just had a major discovery announced by our physicist colleagues, and that was literally making waves in the physics community that week. So physicists had discovered, after almost a century of, of looking for the evidence, the most direct evidence yet for the existence of gravitational waves. Uh, this is uh, about 100 years ago, Einstein proposed that the universe was really based on a structure, on a fabric of space-time. And gravity, as, a, as this biologist understands it, was essentially just indentations in that fabric of space-time made by matter. And it turns out that even though every piece of matter makes these indentations, it's really hard to find direct evidence of the waves created in, in the fabric of space-time because of this gravity. So it took many decades of work by an international team of physicists uh, building some incredibly complex and large-scale instruments to be able to detect 
a really tiny, tiny evidence of this wave. And of course, they detected a really tiny wave that reached us from the explosion or, or you know, the ripples created by two black holes colliding in a remote part of the universe. Now, just you know, thinking about that and reflecting on that just blows my mind that we are now at a point where we are able to detect something that occurred a long time ago, a long way away. It's an, an, uh, an event of incredible and unimaginable physical force that left a tiny ripple that passed through the Earth, which we were able to detect. And in fact, if you go and look for the gravitational wave stories from a couple of weeks ago, and you, you can even hear the recording. The, they call it a chirp. So it sounds like a little, you know, almost like a dolphin's chirp. So that was really exciting to think about. And, you know, I'm a biologist. I don't really understand this. And maybe one of these upcoming shows, we might get a physicist to come and explain these things to us. But there was, there was another physics uh, astronomy story that caught my attention this week, when, uh, which, which also involves some massive explosion in space. And, well, not so much explosion, but this is more about how uh, the gravitational forces from stars like our sun, when they reach a certain age and they might, you know, they have their own life cycle and certain stars of a certain mass, like our sun, I think, go to a stage called a white dwarf, where they might disrupt their own solar system in such a way that if a planetary orbit happens to come too close to them, then they might literally shred the planet to pieces. They might, you know, destroy the planet. So this is, of course, you know, this sounds like science fiction, something like you might see in, you know, in a Star Trek movie or something like that. People have made predictions about this. Well, it turns out that uh, we actually have evidence of of this happening. You may remember, I think last uh, last spring we had a, uh, on an astronomer, uh, one of my colleagues, Fred Ringwald, on the show. He was talking about how we we are now able to discover planets around other stars. And the, we have a telescope, the Kepler telescope, in space that is dedicated to f looking for planets. So it turns out sometime last year, one of the planets this, this t the telescope was, help, was able to help us find, so I think it's about f 570 light years away, uh, they found the evidence for the planet because of the dimming of the light from this star, because as the planet moves around it in orbit, they can detect that, and that's the primary way we find planets. So apparently, about seven months later, another set of observations looked at this and found that there are actually a lot more pieces apparently floating around the star. And based on you know that change that has been observed in just a seven-month period, and uh, other observations they've made about the spectrum of the star, they, they concluded, this paper concludes that this looks like a real-time observation of a planet being, sh you know, basically broken apart by the gravitational force of their star uh, being a white dwarf. Another remarkable thing that we've been able to discover. So, you know, those are a couple of things that caught my eye. Something closer to home, uh, more directly near home, there was a study from North Carolina where a citizen science project uh, enlisted, I think, something like 50 different homes in, in the Raleigh uh, Research Triangle area where they sent a team of entomologists, 
right, people who study bugs, to go see what kind of bugs you find in people's homes. Now, these are places that where people live normally, and many of them, I'm sure, are pretty neat and clean in, in the way they maintain their homes. And yet, these entomologists went in, students and, you know, uh, professors, and sampled these homes, and they found dozens of species of little bugs, different kinds of arthropods, in people's homes. Many of them are not really harmful. Might be, you, know, you might know that people actually, most of us have mites that li live on our faces. So there's, a, there's an incredible amount of diversity of living organisms that live right on our bodies or in our homes that we are not aware of. And they have you know, amazing effects and things that we might study. And I think uh, the topic we're going to talk about today might actually touch upon some of these micro, microscopic organisms and the benefits they can provide us. Right? So that, that was an interesting story closer to home. And, and finally, uh, I want to remind everyone that you know, we are in this amazing El Nino winter. So we've had a lot of rain, a lot of snow in the mountains. And one of the visible, spectacular effects of that, that's visible in California and, and elsewhere in the West, is that we now, as it's warming up, we have incredible blooms of flowers all over the place. If you go into the in foothills just around Fresno, you'll see entire hillsides covered in poppy, you know, beautiful poppy fields and other flowers. So, you know, this is a great time to go out and enjoy this because, of course, we are in this cycle of drought and rain. So, if the drought comes back, we may not get this kind of bloom for many years. So, uh, with that, a reminder to go out and, and enjoy nature in this, in this spring. I want to turn now and introduce our guest today. So we have in the studio with me uh, Matt Brain. Uh, he's the brains behind winemaking in uh, Fresno State now. He's the, he's the new winemaker on my campus at uh, Fresno State. He teaches in the Department of Viticulture and Enology. Now that's a mouthful of terminology, but viticulture refers to the art and science of growing grapes. And enology is the art and science of making wine. That's correct. So uh, Matt's moved here recently after doing graduate work uh, studying fire ants in Texas. Mm -hmm. And he has a uh, long interest in botany and microbiology, he tells me. he's also it's, And it's the microbiology that got him interested in wine and brought him to Fresno State. And uh, he's currently doing his doctorate while teaching here, but he's, he's doing a doctorate through the University of Adelaide. That's right. So... Uh, how fantastic that for what is practically our first birthday of our show, we have wine in the studio <laughs> <laughs> and a winemaker to tell us about the science of wine. That's Welcome. right, a celebration show. Welcome to Candle in the Dark, Matt. Thank you so much for having me. It's, uh, it's great to be here. I, I love what you're doing. I love, um, I love listening to podcasts and radio shows talking about technical science topics like this. It's my favorite. So an honor to be here. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you here. And, and to do something a little bit different in terms of exploring science that's literally on our dinner tables. That's right. right? You know, there, <laughs> one of the things that really drew me to winemaking uh, after my graduate work down in Texas was that winemaking seemed to be um, 
a beautiful mix of a number of different sciences. Mm-hmm. The, of course, in the growing of the grapes, you talk about from the soil up, you talk about the soil chemistry, the soil microbes, uh, irrigation and watering technologies. Of course, the, the plant stock of the, of, mm-hmm. of the, of the vine itself is, is botany. The way that that vine interacts with its environment mm-hmm. is, uh, brings into the weather and climate. You know, us as winemakers, all we really do in the most simplistic form is transform grapes into a, into a nice beverage. So, you know, we, of course, need to harness the power of microbes for that, mm-hmm. for that um, process. So, of course, we're microbiologists. We need to be chemists as well to understand the proper chemistry of the grapes and wine and to understand how to analyze our solutions. So, really, the science side of it, uh, to me, is, is endless and, and fascinating. And there's so many aspects to winemaking. But what I also love is the way these scientific enterprises mix with the art of yeah, winemaking exactly. and the ability to verbalize these different um, flavors and aromas and to share them with, with diverse people um, and find these commonalities over wine. I, I just absolutely love it. That's fantastic. Yeah, and I was going to ask actually if, uh, since you talked about the science of microbiology and, and you know, the, the environmental aspects of grape growing, mm-hmm. but winemaking itself is sort of a much older art, well before what we consider modern science techniques and, you know, even our knowledge that microbes exist. Yes, you know, that's right. Um, and there, there's a great consultant uh, out of the Napa area named Clark Smith who's really coined the term postmodern winemaking. And, yeah. and that really, it allows us to think about winemaking in a number of uh, chronological stages. The early stages of, of course, ancient winemaking was largely done by recipe and mm-hmm. by anecdotal evidence, word okay. of mouth, you know, uh, constantly learning from previous generations. But in that passing of knowledge, there was a lot of of quasi-basic science Mm -hmm. taking place. Now, um, it had to do with the climate. It had Mm -hmm. to do with the chemistry they could taste using their palate. So a lot of involving of the senses in Mm -hmm. in the winemaking process. We like to refer as as modern winemaking more as utilizing the the science, the microbes, um, the understanding of microbial fermentations and, and plant chemistry. That's modern winemaking, using all the tools under the sun to understand mm-hmm. the most we can about wine. Now, we can refer to postmodern winemaking as stepping back a little bit from some of the technologies and taking a look at some of the ancient traditions and oh, saying, okay. let's use technology where it's needed in order yep. to make a healthy, clean product that people will enjoy drinking and that will be nourishing yeah. to them. Because I truly do feel that that wine is, is the most nourishing of alcoholic beverages out there. And it's saying, let's use a little bit of science yeah. in order to not use a whole bunch of science. Okay. You know, we, we can use things like sterile filtration uh-huh. to take all of the potential microbes out of a wine mm-hmm. so that the wine doesn't change or, or spoil in the bottle. Okay. Now that it, on first look, filtration might seem like a technology that, ooh, maybe maybe we don't yeah. want that yeah. because it's not traditional. But the truth is you, you might have to do more to the wine in terms of adding sulfur, uh, manipulating the wine to stabilize the microbes, whereas filtration is actually the much more natural, healthy process. Yeah. We can use less sulfur yeah. We can, um, we can have a cleaner finished product, and so, so you might reduce the sulfur headaches. Oh, oh absolutely, absolutely, and and more than just that, I'm glad you referred to the headaches because 
there's a lot of misconception out mm -hmm. there about where headaches come from in yeah. wine. Now, of course, we all know that if you drink a little too much, mm -hmm. there is a headache there, mm -hmm. no matter the alcohol. Mm -hmm. So that's the commonality. Uh -huh, but with wine specifically, people have keyed in on, this, on the sulfite ad as um, an origin to their headache, where the truth is less than 1% of the population that drinks actually, wine so actually yep. has a sulfur sensitivity. Yeah. More often than not, what is in the wine is these byproducts from microbial fermentation. Mm -hmm. They often come from microbes that we don't really want in the wine. Okay. So not the primary uh, fermenters like the yeast, yeah. um, from other spoilage uh, microorganisms. Okay. These microorganisms cause some compound families called biogenic amines, which are very close and often include the molecule histamine. Now these type of molecules yeah. go right to the sinuses, they yeah. cause headaches, they cause pressure in the front yeah. of the head. And so most wine headaches come from these biogenic amines. It's almost like an allergy headache. It is. It's exactly right. It's just like an allergy. So I, I encourage people to take a look at that because um, What you need to do is, if you've had these these little head headache reactions, take a look at different producers out there. Mm. Some people produce in a very traditional form, and they allow a lot of microbes to kind of okay. to, to come to the pool party when it comes yeah. to the wine fermentation. Other um, winemaking programs are very strict about which uh, microbes they allow to be present in the wine. These wines tend to be cleaner wines with less biogenic amines. So I, I encourage people to look at different producers and find a producer that works for them and trust them because they're probably making a w the wine in a healthy way that agrees with your body. So mm. explore, you know, T take a look around and see who's doing things in a way that agrees with you. Cool. Now, one of the things that, you know, you periodically sort of hear about these studies where people have done blind tests of mm -hmm. the taste of wine yes. and show that <laughs> they seem to show that sometimes even the experts can't tell between the the fancy high you know price Absolutely. bottles and something like you know the everybody's favorite have been exposed to different aromas in their life, different mm -hmm. foods, different spices, um, you know, and these lead us to being able to dial in and identify different flavor and, and aroma compounds to a different degree. So sensory science is really about the statistical analysis of the variation in people's perception of the wine. So that gets a little tricky. And what I mean by that is you can put a great wine in mm -hmm. front of a bunch of people and they all might like it but some might not yeah you can put a, a, a very price point it's conscious wine a lower cost wine in front of that same group mm -hmm. some are going to like it and some are not and there's an, a lot of overlap to what people think is quality so i think when people are out shopping and they're worried about this i don't want to spend too much money because yeah. i'm afraid it's going to be not as good as the cheaper wine well 
in general, the higher you move up in the price class, you do get better wines. But that being said, to find a wine at a good price point is a find. And if you like it and it's at a low price point, it's the right wine for you. So go get that wine while it's still on the shelf. But be conscious because that producer might not be able to do as good a job at that price next year. So you know what? It's always a hunt. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so it's, we just want to keep it exciting, I guess. Absolutely, that that's exactly right. Now, I, see, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned culture and, and taste variation based on that because, mm-hmm. uh, as you might guess, I grew up in India. Yes. And, and not in a wine drinking culture at all. Right. And, of course, our range of you know spiciness in foods is very different as well. So one of the things that I often struggle with, and I'm not, I'm, I'm only still you know a novice at wine drinking sure. or, or recognizing flavors, but one of the things that I've always struggled with is sort of finding wines that might work with the kinds of spicy foods we eat. That's right. You know, so that is a challenge because most of the traditional wine growing regions um, are not typically heavily spiced foods. Mm-hmm. So in my experience, and I think if you ask a lot of sommeliers, which are really the experts in pairing food and wine together, the spicier food you've got goes very nicely with um aromatic white wines because the aroma intensity of the spice almost needs a very high uh, impact aromatic white to balance it. Now, if you like a little bit of richness and a little fruitiness on the palate, some wines that have just a little bit of sweetness in them work very, very well with the hotter spice because hot and spicy um, and alcoholic and bitter can really kind of intensify on the palate and they can build. But a little bit of cool white wine that has a bit of sweetness can really refresh the palate and make you ready for that next bite of spice. So there needs to be a bit of a refreshing kind of aspect to the wine there. Now that being said, some of the richer, jammier red wines um, that might not be sugar sweet but actually Mm -hmm. have a little bit of sweeter kind of fruity character, like a Zinfandel or like a, um, a Malbec from Argentina would would potentially work well with a spicier meat because that fruity rich um, red character can can balance that intensity of the spice as well. Now it's an interesting topic and just quickly because Fresno State is actually looking at moving some of our wines to the east. Uh, we've mm. had some interest from China and Japan okay. and, and we always get the question is which of your wines and we make up to 20 or more wines per year which of your wines match better with the culture and the food yeah. in these yeah. different countries. So these are the kind of things we think about. What type of spice level, what type of of food intensity level for the Japanese, for example, you've got much more, in general, purity of fruit and a lighter palate. So for them, we might offer mm. more of a dry white wine or a very light aromatic red wine like Pinot Noir, which will which will match better with their mm. more simple seafood-based food. Um, China, moving into the spices, some of the red peppers, once again, similar okay. to Indian food huh. in the type of wines we would try to match. Oh, huh. interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, all this talk of food and wine making me hungry. <laughs> yes, me too. <laughs> and I wish I had some samplings of these different foods available. But I, and I know I see that you brought some wines for samples. Yes, here. I did. I did. <laughs> I brought two wines that I'm very excited to share with you. Yeah, um, sure. I'll start pouring as I chat. Um, this so is a new one for me to, to, to do some on-air wine. Yes, tasting. great, great, great. Well, I'll, I'll try to pour close to the microphone so we get a little audio out of it. But um, ah, nice. Okay, there we go. So I brought two wines. Uh, The first wine I brought is a wine that I made this past year. It's a Chardonnay made 
uh, exclusively in tank. And I brought this wine because, first of all, it's one of mine and from my first vintage here, and I'm really proud of it. First of all, Madhu, cheers. Thank you very much for having me. And um, so I'm very excited to tell people and your listeners uh, that I'm excited for my wines to finally mm-hmm. be in the pipeline. We'll be looking at starting to bottle them uh, later this year, and people will start to see those on the shelf uh, probably early next year. Now, uh, this Chardonnay that I brought in, I just wanted to bring it in to, to show you the very nice, clean aromatics mm-hmm. of it. Uh, we do make a, a Chardonnay that's fermented in barrel as well, and it's got some really nice vanilla toast characters oh. but with this wine we're really just going for a real purity of fruit on okay. the nose and a real pure expression of Chardonnay now when I get my nose in here I'm getting okay. some some interesting kind of pineapple um, and pear type of aromas yeah. kind of almost tropical uh, I love this wine because it's right out of tank it's not even bottled yet it's it's got just a tiny bit of haze to it if you'll notice because it hasn't been clarified it's just a very raw kind of fresh fun wine so let's taste it and see what we think Mm. so you'll see um i think you'll see on the palate that there's some nice acidity it's got some nice freshness um uh, it's bright, but it's actually got some viscosity on the mouth. It's not watery. It's got some nice weight. I think that the um, the flavors are clean, fruity, maybe even a little bit of kind of white floral character. Pears and apple, maybe a little bit of banana pineapple, mm. um, tropical flavors. But I think it's just an easy wine, nice sunny day wine like this today. And I'm I'm excited to um, to get it into the bottle and start um, and start getting people um, familiar with it. That's great, and. I'll raise the glass again for... Yeah. I actually want to raise the glass to the studio, KFCF. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, our producer Vic Bedoyan in the, in the, behind the glass there and Rich Withers who have hosted this show for the past year. Um, I, I think... Okay. Uh, one question that I wanted to ask you, and I, I, I know you're also doing a wine tasting tonight at... It's, at, it's tomorrow night. Or tomorrow night. Okay, tomorrow right. night yes. at Peeves Pub. Again. At Peeves, that's yeah. right. I hope yeah. uh, I pe- hope people will come and um, and support the both of us taking some uh, some of my brand new barrel samples down to Peeves. I've got four wines in mind, so I'll be pouring those um, and talking to people about the wines and what I'm doing with the program, um, the changes that we've made uh, so far um, under under my lead, and um, you know, think we're in a really exciting spot right now. Um, we are involved in new contracts for vineyards we're bringing in new fruit we're making wine in in ways that um, are very cutting edge but also very traditional and i really think that in 2015 we made the best wines that fresno state has ever made now that's a big bold claim um and well a president wants us to be bold right that's right that's right so i'm i'm throwing it out there and um you know of course we're always building on the shoulders of of those who Mm -hmm. came before us and i've um i've been uh very fortunate to inherit uh a long and, and very proud tradition of technical winemaking mm. and teaching at Fresno State. I mean, we are the most award-winning winery in the area. And, and it's the only academic wine label, right? That's right. And a very unique program in that the, the we're the only school um, for winemaking in North America that has a production, mm-hmm. full-scale production facility involved in the teaching and in the educational Excellent. program. Yeah. And also access to us on the research side as well. You know, we're very focused on applied science and applied mm-hmm. research at Fresno State. Not, not theoretical one-day, yeah. you know, um, pie-in-the-sky type of research, but very applied. 
and having the full-scale facility there to show the students um, how to do things properly at full scale and in a cutting modern way is just an absolute, uh, it's a dream. uh, It's something that I've been building towards. I feel very fortunate. That sounds fantastic, and I, I look forward to hearing more about that at your tasting tomorrow. Mm-hmm. But I also want to remind everyone that you're actually going to be uh, our speaker for the Cafe Scientific next week. Yes. Uh, which is on March 2nd. Right. That's the first Wednesday of the month at, at PU's Pub. Uh, so, yeah, people can either come, well, they can come tomorrow as well as next sure, week. Sure, sure. I'm, I'm really excited. Yes, I'm excited about uh, the Cafe Scientific uh, yeah. talk. Um, I've already started putting together some notes. I'm I'm going to be talking a little bit of, about my research into natural yeah, winemaking. And um, I actually focused in on natural antioxidant systems in grapes and in wine. Nice. And um, Because that, that's where the health implications come in as well. You know, there, about absolutely. Yeah. There's the health implication, but also... So if we understand, if we fully understand the the natural antioxidant systems in grapes and wine, we can understand how to utilize them and nurture them and decrease the unnatural antioxidant need, referring to the use of sulfur and ascorbic acid and these things. So my research is towards natural winemaking, but very high technology analysis and and processing. Excellent. Mm Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I look forward to hearing all about that and, and uh, talking to you some more and over some more Fresno Strait wines at Peeves Pub. I want to thank you for being on our show this week and uh, uh, look forward to, you know, Fresno Strait wine reaching new levels. Yes. Leadership here. Th- thank you very much for, uh, for having me. It's been my pleasure. All right. So that's, uh, I think we'll wrap our, our show for today. Uh, Science, A Candle in the Dark will be back on Tuesday, March 22nd, which is during spring break. And uh, as I just mentioned, the uh, Central Valley Cafe Scientific will meet again next week at Peeves Pub on March 2nd with uh, our guest Matt Brain telling us more about post-modern wine and the science of winemaking. And for more information about the cafe and announcements about upcoming events, please visit our website at valleycafesci.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter. I want to thank uh, my producer, Vic Bedoyan, uh, and uh, Scott Hatfield, for co- who composed the theme music for our show. And uh, you know, I wish our show a happy birthday, and I want to thank KFCF again for hosting us. And with that, so long for another month. And in the meantime, happy sciencing, because remember, science is a verb. And you are listening to KFCF 88.1 FM in Fresno. Before we go, I just wanted to remind you what a great journey it's been, uh, the one-year anniversary of Candle in the Dark. Uh, And you can keep this kind of extremely uh, interesting uh, and uh, laudatory programming uh, here in the Valley produced locally by KFCF. You can keep that going very simply. 1-800-439-5732 is a number that you can call to pledge your support. You can also go to www.kfcf.org and scroll down to the bottom of the page uh, and uh, make a pledge. It only costs uh, about 11 cents a day if you get the $40 regular subscription to 
KFCF Radio. So please join in and become a part of our family, part of the science family here at uh, KFCF. We're proud to present this programming, and we hope that you like it and appreciate it with some contributions as well. Thanks a lot, and back to KBFA.